0: Amen. Well, it's great to uh, be with you this morning again. Uh, We're in the middle of our Christmas series uh, in Romans chapter 8. Last week, Russ was speaking about God with us. This week, we're going to speak about God with us. Uh, And uh, uh, so for Christmas Day, we're going to speak about God in us. But I can imagine one or two people might be saying, well, where's the Christmas story in Romans chapter 8, for those who know it a little bit? Where are the shepherds? Where's baby Jesus? Where's Mary, Joseph and the angels? But Romans 8 is the Christmas story, because while Matthew and Luke record the events of Jesus' birth, the rest of the New Testament, including uh, Romans chapter eight, tells us the implications, what happened because of Jesus' birth, that in the birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God had fulfilled his rescue plan for mankind. The Christmas story is all over Romans chapter eight. We mustn't see Jesus' birth in isolation from the rest of his ministry. I want to show you a picture, a painting by a chap called Holman Hunt in the 1870s. And it shows Jesus in his carpenter's shop, stretching his arms out from a hard day's labour. And the shadow... That shines, so the light is shining on him, and the shadow that's cast behind him lands on a wooden beam that's put up on the wall of his shop. And there are all sorts of details in this picture. And Holman Hunt is seeing, as Jesus is still, before his ministry started, working in his carpenter's shop, he's seeing ahead the shadow of the cross, the shadow of death, is over Jesus in this scene. And in the bottom left-hand corner, Mary is bending down. And she is just looking up and she catches sight of this shadow on the cross beam, as it were. And what she's looking in is a basket where she's kept the gifts that the Magi gave her. It's a very powerful picture. And I think it's also true to say that we can see the shadow of the cross over the manger scene just the same. We mustn't see the birth of Jesus in isolation. He comes in order to live Teach, die, rise, ascend. And all of that is seen in this manger scene as well. So Romans 8 unpacks the Christmas story. I want to give you three aspects this morning of God being with us here from this chapter, from these verses. Let's read uh, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 1 finish at verse 4. flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit i have one point of application for you this morning and i'm going to give it to you now and it's this i just want you to be amazed and delighted in jesus all the more that's the point of application So firstly, in verse 2 here, we have this. God has set us free wonderfully and magnificently. So last week, Russ spoke from the headline statement in this passage. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The implication, of course, being this, that once we were guilty and condemned... Paul can say, now there's no condemnation because there was condemnation previously when we weren't in Christ Jesus. And that condemnation was essentially, it was upon us because essentially we had not lived a God-pleasing life. We hadn't obeyed his law. We hadn't lived a sinless life that he desired and needed from us, required of us. And therefore we were condemned. That was our terrible, terrible plight. And that was the condition which Paul picks up here a little bit. That was our condition, even though God had given us his law. He'd given his people his law, which taught them how to live in a way that would please him, how to live a holy God-loving life. And that law, instead of promoting a God-pleasing life, sort of just highlighted the fact that people could not keep his law and could not please God. Its intended result, it didn't quite have. The result was, we are guilty. The result was, the inevitable consequences of that was death. I wonder if you've ever been in a terrible, terrible predicament from which you needed to be set free. I've not had any terrible experiences like that, but I remember once, I may have mentioned this a little while ago, I remember once getting ready for an outdoor pursuits course on my uh, PE teacher training uh, degree, and we had to go into a swimming pool uh, in a canoe. Now, I'm not great on water at the best of times, and we had to get into this canoe, and we had to intentionally capsize. And I was literally terrified because not only did I capsize, here's me upside down under the water, I could not get my spray, whatever it was called, off my spray shield off. I could not remove it. I tried to remove it. I couldn't remove it. I tried again. I couldn't get it. I just could not get it off. And I was just about running out of breath when I finally got it off and popped my head up out of the water. It was literally terrifying. I wonder if you've ever been in a predicament where you think, I'm doomed. I've had it. That was my closest one I think I've had yet. We were doomed. We had had it. And this pronouncement of no condemnation now comes on the back of you were doomed you were condemned and guilty and worthy of death through Jesus Christ verse 2 the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death I was absolutely a goner until Jesus said I forgive you I clean you I declare no condemnation anymore over you This is the love we have from the Father. This is the grace and mercy we are so grateful for. The Christmas good news is so outstandingly good because the former bad news of our condemnation was so horrifically bad. And the more we understand the predicament we were in, the more we will be delighted with what Jesus has done for us. Because we will understand that we were in a mess of our own making and Jesus has set us free. Enjoy it. If you're a Christian here watching this morning, enjoy that. Delight in it. Be so glad he has set you free from an utterly horrific predicament. Verse 2, God has set us free. Verse 3, God has done this by sending his own son. So you might want to say, well, how does God set us free? How does God remove our guilt? How does he declare no condemnation over us anymore? Does he just simply forgive us? Perhaps that's what he does because that's the kind of God he is and that's kind of his job to forgive us. Here's a little story written by don carson i recall meeting a young and articulate french west african when i was studying in germany more than 20 years ago we were both working diligently to improve our german but once a week or so we had had enough so we went out for a meal together and retreated to french a language we knew well through those conversations pretty soon i discovered that once or twice a week he disappeared into the red light district of town Obviously, he went to pay his money and have his woman. Eventually, I got to know him well enough to ask him what he would do if he discovered that his wife were doing something similar in London. Oh, he said, I'd kill her. That's a bit of a double standard, isn't it? I replied, you don't understand. Where I come from in Africa, the husband has the right to sleep with many women, but if a wife does it, she must be killed but you told me you were raised in a mission school. You know that the God of the Bible does not have double standards like that. He gave me a bright smile and replied, ah, God is good. He's bound to forgive. That's his job. I want to say no, absolutely no. God is not simply forgiving in a very simplistic way. Rather, he's done it through the very great cost of sending his son. So verse 3 in this passage reads like this, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, our sinful humanness, God did by sending his own son to be with us in our likeness. And we need to ask, well, what was the law powerless to do? God had given his holy and good law to the Jewish people. What was it powerless to do? Well, it was, it was powerless to produce a right standing before God. It was powerless to produce a heart that loved God. It was powerless to produce a holy life. It could neither truly justify or sanctify. And many of us would like to say, well, I don't know about this. This all sounds a bit grim. I'm quite a decent person. I do pretty well. I'm sure I could match up to some of God's law. Well, let me very quickly dispel your crazy idea. The first of the Ten Commandments says this, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God must be first in everything. I'm not sure I did that yesterday. I'm not sure I've done that today. The last... Of the Ten Commandments says this You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey, which I don't think I've personally done, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I'm not sure I've done that in the last week. At any moment, the law, God's holy, good, and pleasing law, tells me in my own self guilty. As charged, And then you you get to the New Testament and you think, well, it's all right because Jesus is nice. Jesus is kind and gracious and loving. It must, must be all right with him. It might be difficult in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, let me just tell you one simple sentence that Jesus said. Matthew 5, verse 48, he said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I fail that every single day. It's not easier with Jesus. He almost, as it were, raises the standard. So what can we say about God's law? Was it unreasonable? Was it just bad? No, of course not. It was from God. Romans, the previous chapter in Romans, tells us that God's law, what he requires of us, is holy and righteous and good. No, the weakness wasn't in God's law. The weakness was in human flesh. The law was weakened in that it couldn't accomplish its desired result because of our wrongdoing, because of our failings, our sinfulness. It was weakened by the flesh. I'm not going to set fire to the building, hopefully, but I do have a match here. If I light it, it's a good, it's a good match. God's law is good and holy and pleasing. But if I put that match, this is a very limited illustration, of course, if I put that match before it burns my fingers in this water, what what happened? Was Was it a bad match? No, it was a good match. God's law was good and holy and righteous and pleasing, but it was weakened when it was in the flesh. Mankind never could obey fully God's law and so we are done for, as we've already said. We need to live a holy, good, God-pleasing life, free from sin, but are incapable, even with God's good instructions to us. Enter Jesus. This is why it's such magnificent news. What the law was powerless to do to help us live in a righteous way, God did by sending his own son. And note note these two parts. This is very important. Note these two parts. Firstly, Jesus came to live for us the righteous life we needed. We'll see that he came to die as well. But it's like God looks on us and says, you cannot and you will not live a righteous life that I require of you. So I will do it for you in the person of my son. What we couldn't do, what the law couldn't produce in us, God did in us graciously and wonderfully. It's like parents sometimes, so every illustration, by the way, uh, is limited. uh, But parents sometimes will say to them, I've done it with my kids. Before you go to bed, I want you to make sure you tidy your room. Or before you go to school, I want you to make sure you do your washing up. And then you find they haven't. And what do you do? Well, sometimes you have to reiterate it to them, but other times you do it for them. You say, you, see, you seem to be incapable. You couldn't do this all the time, of course. But sometimes it's thoroughly appropriate. You do for them what you have required of them. God has done for us what he required of us by sending his son to live the righteous life that we needed but could not live and he came to be a sin offering too chapter 8 here verse 3 God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and so he condemned in the body of Jesus he judged and condemned our sin my wrongdoing was paid for and dealt with such that one old writer can say for those who are in Christ Jesus there is no divine condemnation left since the condemnation they deserve has already been born for them by him and both of those parts are hugely important when we understand what Jesus has done often if we say to someone what has Jesus done for you we'll say he died for me on the cross and that is magnificently true he took my punishment so there's none left for God to pour out on me but he also lived a righteous life for me that I needed. If I'm just forgiven, I'm not righteous. I have like a, you know, like a neutral bank account. I need the righteousness of God put to me. Jesus came to die for my sin and pay for it. He came to, to live the righteous life that I need, which he credits to me. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son, God with us. That's the message of Christmas. This is the grace and mercy we love. Thank you, Jesus, for living a righteous life for me that I could never live. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and paying the debt that was necessary. It's great news. It's magnificent. And thirdly, there's more. Verse 4. So that we can live according to the Spirit. See, all of this means that not only God was with us, but that He is with us still. So, the end of verse 3 says, He condemns sin in. And then, verse 4: In order that this requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not now live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, I am. I used to live like this. I used to live away from God. I didn't care about God. And God has transferred me and forgiven me and brought me into his family and said, no longer guilty. I love you, accept you. My son died for you and lived for you. And now I live here. I don't go back over here and live as if I was back under the law of sin and death. I live here. I live a new life, empowered by the Spirit. A new life that is God in me, enabling me, empowering me to live according to the Spirit. I have the Spirit who gives life, in verse 2. It's a new heart, alive to God. My heart wasn't alive to God at all once upon a time. It is now. I now find I want to please Him. I don't get it right every time, but I find it in myself, a desire to please God. I find I have a new agenda for life, which is that God must come first. That sounds a bit like the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. I may, may not be perfect with this, but I find that the Holy Spirit in me is helping me produce a life that the law never could overhear. Any amount of instruction because the life of God himself is in me, enabling me to live according to the Spirit. Friends, keep praying that the Holy Spirit will lead you in a Godward direction. Keep praying, keep seeking him Trust in Jesus that there's no condemnation. Don't trust yourself to not be condemned, your own behaviour. Trust Jesus. But pray the Spirit in you will keep leading you to travel in a Godward direction. But before we close, there's one more hugely significant thing that we need to say. Because if I jump back to verse 1, which is the headline for this whole section, there's a condition attached to all this because all of this is extraordinary news all of this is amazingly good news but there's a condition attached and it's this verse one therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus this isn't just universally true it's true for those who are in Christ Jesus Now the concept of being in Christ or in Jesus or in Jesus Christ is a huge New Testament theme and it's massively important for understanding how all this good news can be true for me, for you personally. This is all true for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Let me give you an illustration to hopefully try and make some sense of it. Imagine, again, So every illustration is flawed. But imagine a law is passed today that said, Tim, you must get from London to Melbourne, Australia, by Wednesday. Imagine there was a good reason for that. It's a good, pleasing, holy, righteous law. It's a good law. Well, of course, in myself, I'm absolutely powerless. I, I haven't got a hope. It's just not going to happen. I can make a start. I can get myself way to London, I'm just never going to get anywhere near what is required of me. But there is a way, there is a way to get to Melbourne, Australia by Wednesday, and it's this, it's to put myself in something that can obey that law, that can fulfill that law. In this case, an aeroplane. If I can place myself in that aeroplane, trust it fully, depend on it totally, I will meet the requirement. Not by doing anything much myself, but by simply trusting myself and placing myself in the thing that can do it. That's what we're doing when we're trusting Jesus Christ. We're saying, God, I cannot live in the way that you require and need, not need, require. I cannot fulfill all that you want, but I put myself in someone, Jesus Christ, who can, who has, and I trust him totally. I depend on him completely, rely on him wholly and not on myself in order to be right with God. Let me ask you this morning, are you in Christ Jesus? because all this magnificent stuff we've spoken about has a condition for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, are you trusting him for your salvation? Are you relying on him completely? Have you given up hoping to be good enough that God will like you and love you and accept you? No, trust Jesus alone. Depend on him alone. Maybe you're watching at home today and you've never taken that step. You've never placed yourself, as it were, in Christ Jesus. Let me encourage you to do that now. Say, Jesus, I need your life and death for me. Forgive me. Accept me. Maybe you're a Christian this morning watching and you've been worrying about how good you are or bad you are and whether God will love you. Let me ask you to give up on that and remind yourself that you are in Christ Jesus who has done it all for you. What a great place to be. What a joyful place to be. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for God sent his son to do what we could never do. It's the most extraordinary message. It's the Christmas message. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you need to make a decision right now. Hope in Jesus Christ alone. Put yourself in his hands, he'll never let you down. Trust him. And the one point of application, as I said earlier, is just this. Be amazed, be delighted at these magnificent truths of Romans chapter 8 and thank God for Jesus Christ and what he's done. Amen.